Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it fast. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Good to be on as always. I'm Jamie Smith. I support Burnley, and I write and edit the No Name Never newsletter. Hi, thanks for having me on again, Kevin. Uh, as always, I wish it was in better circumstances. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin, and I'm a Spurs fan uh, based in Belfast, and I'm the former chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. One of our teams found success in North London today. It wasn't Tottenham, but we'll get to that later. Um, I wanted to start off by getting into our half-year uh, review, which we typically do in like the second or third week of December, but thanks to all the postponements, uh, just now everybody has passed 19 matches played, except Burnley, still on 18, but figured we need to get this over with before it's February. Uh, So I just wanted to start with that. Everybody's played everybody once, but Burnley. Uh, So where do you think people will land in terms of the title race, top four European places, and and the relegation race? Yeah, well, I think um, the table's obviously starting to take shape now. It's it's a bit strange in some places because there are so many teams that are behind, like Burnley, the obvious team that have got so many games still to play. Um, it's a shame that the title race looks like it's not a thing now. Like, it's not that long ago, is it, since it looked like Chelsea, Liverpool, City were going to go head-to-head-to-head to head to head, and it looked like it was going to be really exciting. And then Man City just decided they were just going to win every week at the same time as Liverpool and Chelsea start dropping points. So I think that's probably over. Um, in terms of the other top four places, it's very difficult to see Liverpool or Chelsea falling away from that. I think they will be second and third, probably in the order they are at the moment. So Liverpool ahead of Chelsea. Um, I think it was always going to be a difficult season for Liverpool with the Africa Cup of Nations going in the middle of it, losing Salah and Mane for a few games. Um, but the City are essentially just doing what they've been doing for the last three, four seasons and setting incredibly high standards. Is that 13 um, in a row for them now? Oh, no, well, they, they didn't win. They just they ended That's this, right. so it, was, it was 12. It would have been 13. Um, but it looks like it's going to be four titles in five years for them. Liverpool had to get 99 points, was it, to stop them in the, the first COVID season. So, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to... to to stop Man City at the moment. You've got to assume that until Guardiola moves on, they're going to be the team to beat. Um, For fourth place, I think it is really wide open. That looks like it's probably going to be where most of the excitement is. I was actually surprised, looking at the table, that Manchester United were fourth because Mm. they just seem to have been in crisis all season and they're in possession at the moment. Obviously, there's teams with games in hand. Um, I think... A lot does depend on what happens in the next week. I think if Spurs get the, the players that Antonio Conte wants, I think they've got a good shot at it. 
Um, West Ham seems to be losing games at a bad time and I don't think Arsenal have got the, the character. So um, I think Spurs have got a pretty good chance, actually, of getting the top four. Hey, <laughs> I'm very happy to hear you say that, uh, Jamie. That's a, I'm tremendously encouraged by the fact that somebody else feels that way. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I, I still think, and I agree with every, pretty much everything you said there about the placements, but I, I still think we're at the point where the numbers of games at hand is, is threatening to make a mockery of the integrity of the season to a certain extent because of you know the frequency, the resulting frequency of the games to get caught up uh, and the effect that that's going to have on uh, on the various on the various teams. But um, you know, and, and I think with the with the COVID postponements, the COVID rules, the, the, the league Premier League has basically dug a hole for itself with the. Uh, the postponement criteria and and the inconsistencies with those previous games that were weren't called off. So, and and you know we this was all highlighted at, at, at length last weekend when we you know um, discussing the or you were discussing I guess on the pod about the uh, about the cancelled NLD. But um, in terms of the, the way in which the um, the rest of the season is probably going to play out, I, I totally agree. I mean I think the title cities to lose now. And if anything, they're actually getting better as as the season goes on. Uh, I think the the only sort of hiccup really is um, the extent to which they they put resources towards the Champions League. But but then that's also that's always been a, an, an issue for them. I think you're right, also, Jamie, that the the top three will be as as they are tonight. I think, um, uh, and and then I th- I think the the entertaining part of the end of the season at the top half of the table, I think, is, is going to be that, you know, fourth down to eighth. And I'm sort of including Wolves in that at the, at the moment because, uh, you know, they're, I think they're very similar to, to where we are. Um, and, and that really is what's in flux, those, those next five spots. So uh, that, that, I think, is going to be the entertaining part of the season at, at the top. Uh, on relegation, I mean, what what's got into Norwich recently? Uh, Dean Smith's a very good manager, but you know they've they've done pretty well recently. But I don't think they're they're out of the woods quite quite yet, um, simply because their goal difference is so massive, and that's the clearest sign, <clears throat> I think, of something being seriously wrong at one end of the pitch or or at the other, usually both. Uh, any any of the teams I think up to Leeds right now could could find themselves in in significant difficulty and. Uh, Again, because of the discrepancy in games played, we, we, we don't really have a definitive picture of how that's going to unfold. Um, that was a really good result for Burnley today. Congratulations. But, but again, until they've cleared a couple more games from their backlog, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to predict with any certainty uh, how, how that is going to end up. I think for me, uh, the really interesting team to watch is going to be Everton um, over the over the next few few games. And you sort of think that you know if, if they'd won yesterday against Villa, uh, you could probably have seen uh, Duncan Ferguson getting the job for the rest of the season. But I think they're now in a in a really tricky spot in terms of direction, who's available, um, you know, the sort of investment that they need, and who who's going to guide that going forward. I mean, Leeds are. Leeds are also, I think, precarious, but at least you sort of know pretty much for sure that they're not going to sack Bielsa, uh, at least until the end of the season. So, again, I think as as it always has proved, as City have dominated the league in recent seasons, um, it has proved that the that sort of bottom half uh, of the table has has been 
the more interesting, certainly in terms of the dynamics and the managerial dynamics, particularly. And, and the Newcastle story is always an interesting one uh, as well. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think at, at, at the top of the at the top of the table, I think the the title is is cities to lose um, uh, for sure. Yeah, I think the the bottom obviously a lot depends on transfers again. Like I said, for the, the sort of race for Champions League football. If Newcastle can do the deals that they've been trying to do all month, then it's going to be probably them that are going to be the hardest to catch. Um, I do find it really entertaining that some Newcastle fans are trying to paint themselves as the underdogs in this race. It's like you've got unlimited <laughs> money to spend and you stayed up comfortably with the same squad last season. How are you even down there? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're trying to paint themselves as like some underdog like victims and some Premier League conspiracy. It's absolutely crazy to me. Yeah. Um, obviously, as damaging as it's been for, for Burnley in the last couple of weeks, I actually think it's hilarious that Nor- Norwich look like they could get out of it. Um, having had everyone relegate Norwich in August yes. Yes. and then September <laughs> and then October, um, for them to not be in the bottom three right now is yeah. very, very funny. Um, oh, I hold my hands up to that completely. I thought they oh, were I've done the same. Absolutely. Done the same. But, so but as I say, I think the interesting thing is their goal difference is ten goals worse than the next than Oof. Newcastle next the next uh, team. So I think that there's there's something fundamentally wrong with the team when when they're when they're that bad. Yeah, you're right. It's at both ends, but the goal scored is particularly bad. So they've only scored thirteen in twenty two games. The only team anywhere near that is Burnley on 16, but we've only played 18. Right, four more games. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think goals are really going to be a problem for for Norwich. Pukki doesn't seem to be the same sort of striker that he was a couple of years ago when he started the season really hot. Um, Josh Sargent obviously scored a couple at the weekend, but I don't think he's the guy that's going to score the goals to keep them up either. Um, He's like the third best American striker. Yeah, I mean, he's he's absolutely terrible. I don't know how he scored those goals at the weekend. He's, he's a bad player. Um, but I think you do look at, at goals and who's going to score the goals. Burnley's problem is obviously Chris Wood's gone to Newcastle, which strengthens them, weakens us. Maxwell Corner is AFCON at the moment. Um, no goals in the team whatsoever at the moment. So we need to do business over the next week. I'm sure we're going to touch on that as well. Um the only team that Steve didn't mention that I would be worried about is Brentford. And I've had my eye on Brentford since they played at the turf last year because that's the worst visiting team I've seen at, at mm. Berlin this season. They were terrible. They've lost a few on the bounce. Thomas Frank, I think, is an excellent coach. He's done a fantastic job there, but he seems to be getting a little bit frazzled. Mm-hmm. Um, the Premier League gets tough for for the newly promoted teams in their first season as well. There's not a lot of Premier League experience at Brentford in the dugout, in the dressing room. I think it's going to get sticky for them. However, 23 points might be enough. So they could be safe already. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't be that worried if I was Brentford. Do you think it's just a matter of, um, you know, everyone else has seen them now? Everyone else has played them? Maybe, Um, yeah. And I think they had the new stadium and all the impacts of that and the fans in the new stadium and they've got the really big atmosphere and it's a, a tight ground, even though it's brand new. It's like tight and a bit old-fashioned in a way. 
And I think the atmosphere has probably powered them for a few of the early wins. Yeah. They actually remind me a lot of Burnley in our first promotion season when we had Owen Coyle in charge, in that we approached things in quite a different way to how teams do when they came up. Owen Coyle's Burnley were very, very attacking and would just go and go and go. And we can see goals, but we would score them as well. Brentford seemed a bit like that to me. But I think at some point it looks a bit naive. You have to find ways to grind out results in the Premier League. If you're not playing well, you have to be able to get a nil-nil or smash and grab something that don't look like they've got that in them. So Brentford are the ones for me that could get sucked in. But it's very difficult to think it's not three of the bottom four. And if Newcastle do anything like what they should be able to do in the next week, how do you compete with Newcastle? Yeah, although because of the point difference... I think you could climb up to 13th if you won all of your games in hand. Yeah, I realize exactly. it's an insane we thing won, to say because you've won, won one once. game all season. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps unrealistic. But even if you only won two of your four in hand, you'd be yeah, out of the relegation zone. The thing is, it changes so quickly, doesn't it? So Norwich win two games, they've gone from bottom to out of the relegation zone. We play Watford next. Um, so that's obviously pivotal. If we could win that game, we would and go no both there. And for them? Dennis will be away. Um, Corne might be back, I suppose, depending on what Avery Post do. So there's a lot of things that have got to play out, although there's every chance that game gets postponed for a third time, so we're probably not taking the point <laughs> talking about it too much. Fair. Yeah, I think I agree with you. That the interesting thing is fourth and basically this relegation fight, because there are genuinely like five or six clubs that could all be in it. While it does look like a four of Norwich, Newcastle, Watford, and Burnley. Because of the outstanding games, things could get mixed up very quickly, as you say. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously keep an eye on that as the season unfolds. Uh, next, I wanted to talk to you guys some about player development. So I'm going to start at kind of a negative premise, and then we'll work our way back. But there's been a lot of debate right now at Tottenham about Emerson Royale, who was bought to be a traditional right back in a 4-3-3 under Nuno Espirito Santo, even though that's not the formation he's best at. Um, then, obviously, we bring in Conte. He's playing as a wing back. He's only 22 or 23, if memory serves. But people are saying that you can't just basically learn to cross. You can't just learn to be a wing back, which, you know, some would disagree with based on what Conte has done at other clubs. But the big question is, is there a certain age where you can't really develop anymore? Is it a amount of individual effort that could get you to that point? Could a manager get you to that point based on how they train you? Could it be, you know, a fitness-based regimen that you're doing that could help you get you there? So I just wanted to kind of reverse engineer what you guys think does enable players to kind of take a big step up in ability or or reach potential that others had said that they had previously, and whether it is more internal-based, external-based, or, or what factors you think come into play when players take that next step. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's generally a mixture of different things. So a manager might have a particular impact and then something might click with the player and it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what's happened. Um, but the way I was approaching this question when I saw you send it out to us earlier was trying to think of the most improved players in the league. Um, and the player I was thinking of was Conor Gallagher, who mm. was talented last season in sort of fits and starts, but at Palace has really moved on looks like one of the top attacking midfielders in the Premier League this season. He's probably going to be in the England World Cup squad. We'll see what happens when he goes back to Chelsea and that sell him. Can he get in the Chelsea team? It's all at Conor Gallagher's, Conor Gallagher's feet now. So what's happened with Conor Gallagher to take him from someone who looked like he had talent that didn't show it to now he's affecting games week in, week out? Number one, it's opportunity, right? So he's in a team that's set up 
to get the most out of him. They're not built around Conor Gallagher, but he's playing in three-man midfield more often than not, so he gets to be the most attacking one of the three, which means he's a spare man if they play against the two, like if they were to play against Burnley in a 4-4-2. So he has space a lot of the time. He has a bit more attacking freedom. He can make those late runs into the box that keep getting in compared to Frank Lampard, which I think is a bit unfair for the lads to try and live up to that. But I think there is something Lampardy about his game. Um, and the fact that Palace have brought in so many other talented young players at the same time means that in the dressing room, there's got to be that sort of youthful vim and vigour and excitement about that, what that team can become. You've got like, Eze is very good and young there. Elise is very good and young. Conor Gallagher, Mitchell, the fullback, they've got a good group of young players, so they're obviously now going to develop together. Um, I can't speak to what Patrick Vieira has done with Gallagher in particular, but obviously it's a young manager as well, which I think feeds into what they're doing at Palace. So I think there is a, a multitude of factors, but I think in the case of Gallagher, which is the one I was thinking of, just pure opportunity, playing in a position that suits him and a team that suits him and playing every week. Whereas if he was still at Chelsea, he'd maybe play cup games. Yeah, I was I was absolutely going to make that point. And, and I think Jamie's absolutely right to highlight um, how Gallagher has developed it this season. He's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I, th- I think certainly for younger players, and I think you were right, Kevin, to highlight the fact that Emerson Royale is still only 22. Um for younger players, it's it's playing regularly at as high a level as possible, and and playing as part of a team. I think that has some belief in what can, it can accomplish collectively, and and of course part of that is how your teammates drive and protect you, um, as well as you know. And this goes without saying because this is basically a manager's job. You, you know, having a manager that understands what you're capable of and has a vision for how best to use you. And at the same time, can actually inspire you. But I think, in a way, that probably comes as much from that that idea of team spirit, the idea of you know what your what your teammates expect of you and the bars that they set for you. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Two two images stayed with me <clears throat> from uh, from the Spurs Leicester game this this past week. And and you know after Bergwijn scored the equaliser. There was there was this vision of him and Harry grabbing the ball to get to get back for the restart instead of just celebrating and taking the point. But also there was there was and I don't know if you noticed this, Kevin. I'm, uh, amid the, the the mad celebrations after after the winner, uh, Hoiberg was was pulling Bergwijn back from climbing into the crowd, um, w- w- yeah. which would have got him a second, which would have got him a second yellow card. And so there's there's a sense that you sort of as a young player once you once you break into that to that um, inner circle within a team you rely on your teammates to actually guide you in, in in the right direction and and you know games like that I think that's that shared sense of a collective endeavor the games like that really do and it was said a lot um, after that game really do have the potential to change a season both both in how it ended and. And, and in how it might have ended uh, two minutes earlier. And I, and I think, you know, obviously our, our result against Chelsea today, today will have punctured the balloon a little bit. But if you think that, you know, as I did, that, um, that drawing both games would have been a decent outcome, then, you know, the extra point that we got at Leicester will, will cushion that disappointment somewhat. 
But I think it comes down, I think, a lot, to get back to your original question, it comes down a lot to self-belief. And and that has been something that, you know, we have grasped for under different managers for as long as I've been going to Spurs, for goodness sake. And uh, I, I don't know if you saw Steve Perryman uh, tweeted about Conte yesterday, ahead, so ahead of the Chelsea game. He, he, he tweeted that, what Conte's doing is, is quote, instilling a belief that you're, if you're going to get beaten, you do so with your pride intact and without a surrender mentality. The next step is for the players to accept that and expect it from those around them and to drive home the message if someone's caving in. And I think that's where that motivation, that sort of collective motivation kicks in. Because, you know, you, you've been to Spurs often enough and, and you know, mm. self-belief self-belief both among the players and the fans is a, a huge element in how the team as a group uh, approaches games. Uh, it, it, it always seems to have been a, a very fragile thing among Spurs teams, even <clears throat> even it has to be said under Potch when we were playing some of the some of the best football I've ever seen. You know, there was always that flicker of doubt at the at the back of your mind. But I, I think now we might be in a in a situation not to sort of read too much into recent results, but um, I think we are in a in a, in a position to um, uh, to 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 rectify that, to be on the path to sort of rectifying that. So I think the important emphasis, I think, is on the collective, on on the idea of the players that are around you as you're developing, as you're working your way into the into the um, into the team. But if I had to pick out one individual at Spurs, it would have to be uh, Oliver Skip, and and the more he plays, the better he gets. Uh, and and it's also good just right now that you know Winks Harry Winks has come back into uh, into a vein of form I think just at the right time uh, because Conte has has pretty much dispensed with Ndombele it, it, it looks like so having having Winks and Skip both uh, playing at a level where uh, Conte has the options to use them uh, it gives us gives us a lot more um, a lot more flexibility in midfield. So as I say, I think there are two there are two elements. There's the the individual and the collective, and I think in terms of the dynamic, um, I think the collective is a far more powerful driver. Yeah, I think you both make some really good points there. I, I know both of our clubs are uh, in a little bit of a stagnant period right now, but but do either of you have good examples of players at, at your clubs that have recently taken a step up? And, and if you think that those reasons are why. Uh, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> Most of our players seem to be getting worse rather than better. I mean, the only one that I could really pick out here is is Charlie Taylor, who I think Sean Dyche has made him a bit of a pet project. He seems really keen to try and build Taylor up all the time, so he'll go out of his way to mention that Taylor should be around the England squad, which is ridiculous. Um, but it's the sort of thing that you say as a manager just to, to give the player more confidence. I mean, Taylor's defensive side of his game has come on a lot this season. I think that's partly because he's now playing in the same defence um, with the same winger in front of him mainly for two, three years. So he knows his role inside out. Um, so different to what I was saying about Conor Gallagher, where it's like he's come in and ev- everything's new at Palace. The, man- the manager's new, a lot of the players are new. Taylor is different in that he's learned that role inside out now over a long period of time. And I think that's how you can take your game to a new level as well. Just long experience. Um, so Taylor's probably been one of our better players overall this season. And it's because he's added 
consistency. He used to have good games, bad games, and now he's generally six, seven out of ten every week. Yeah, uh, I was just going to. I already mentioned Oliver Skip, and I think it's important to to watch his development as we go on. But I think also another significant um, player is obviously Harry Kane, because if you if you look at Harry Kane now compared to Harry Kane at the start of the season, and this just sense of of a sort of a lack of direction. Uh, and certainly, I think uh, the one thing that Conte has managed to do is is understand where where Harry contributes the most and use him in in the best way possible. So I, I think in terms of improvement and development, um, I think we're getting more out of Harry now than than we did even a month or six weeks ago. Um, and uh, I know it seems odd to sort of identify one of your one of your best players as improving in that way but I think that's that's entirely down to uh, to the manager yeah recovery of form still very much an upward swing in terms of performance yeah. and development so yeah I think that's absolutely fair um I don't want to get too far into this because I rant so much about not wanting to have to talk about managerial situations but uh we didn't really talk too much about Watford when we were talking about the relegation fight and they all of a sudden find themselves in it uh, after it seeming like they maybe just had the players to get them out of it with Ishmael Assar and Emmanuel Dennis, who had been obviously playing very well, uh, even Josh King after his weird few years bouncing around clubs. But uh, the 3-0 loss to Norwich doesn't look very good on paper, obviously, considering Norwich had been pinned to the bottom, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, I guess we'll just settle for a yes or no. Do you think that Ranieri will still be their manager after this two-week break? I mean, it's Watford, so... No, <laughs> there's every chance that they'll sack him while we're recording this podcast, to be honest. I think the fact that they've got two weeks before the playoffs, that's going to be itchy triggers, itchy finger triggers yeah, in the Watford boardroom. Sorry, you just wanted yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll uh, I'll play contrarian and I'll say yes, he will. And I think he'll still be there at the end of the season only because... Um, and I take the point about uh, Watford having the itchy trigger finger. Certainly, that's that's been the case. But uh, who else could they get? Who else could they get? I don't know. Who's take, it? Take, take <laughs> <Boris back>. Yeah, <laughs> no. might work this time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I think they'll they'll uh, they'll stick with Ranieri to the end of the season. Yeah, it'll definitely be an interesting one. I'm. Sure, coming into the season, they thought this was a possibility. Midway through, probably thought they were fine. And now, all of a sudden, after a loss like that, I'm sure, as you say, Jamie, there will be some questions being asked in those meeting rooms uh, tomorrow yeah. or today, as you say. The only thing to add on Watford is that they will be active in the transfer market because yeah. the owners have got like their circle of clubs and they move the players around. So they will get players in as well. Mm. Uh, so they might well decide to give in the Burnley game with whoever they're signing the next week. So I think he's on borrowed time, but he might get one more match. Yeah. All right. Well, time will certainly tell there. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Jamie, we'll start off with you talking about Burnley, who, I uh, gotta check my notes, played a game of football today. So that's very yeah, confusing. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah, yeah. First Premier League match is January 2nd, if my numbers are right here. Uh, you get a draw against Arsenal. I was just curious your thoughts on the match and if the amount of time in between your matches led to you looking more energized or a little bit disjointed because you hadn't been playing a meaningful match in so long. Just what were your takeaway on the matches and the performance? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great match. Um, probably 10, 15 minutes. It was just a novelty to get to watch my team play football again. <laughs> it's been so long and then the game sort of fell into the pattern of Arsenal playing keep ball not creating any chances being Arsenal and just getting cheap free kicks um, we did look a bit off the pace not to the extent as we did in the Manchester United game around Christmas when again we hadn't played for a couple of weeks we looked really rusty that time I don't know if they played more friendlies in training to try and get that match sharpness it's obviously not the same but they didn't look as off the pace as they did for the United game. Um, really big defensive effort today, I think, was the most important thing. Clean sheets have been an issue for us all season. I think that's only two, three in the league all season. So um, when you think of a Sean Dyche Burnley team, you normally think defensively solid first and foremost. That's not been the case um, for the entire calendar year, really, 2021. There was problems at the back. Um, but Fingers crossed that's going to be the solid foundation now that we can build on. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that we couldn't really have had a better time to play Arsenal. All their midfielders were suspended because they keep managing to get themselves sent off, which is very funny. Um, obviously, Aubameyang's, whatever's going on with Aubameyang. Um, yeah, and they've had a couple of bad results recently. They've played a really tough cup game in midweek against Liverpool as well so there was a lot of factors in our favour we've got a reasonable record against Arsenal as well, we'd won there last season Aubameyang scored no goal so I think it was a good game for us to, to come out of this spell, we obviously didn't want to play the Watford game after three weeks off and have so much pressure on that match that we really have to win so I think we we much preferred having an almost free hit kind of game where if we lose we're expected to lose and anything that we can get is a bonus um, the problem is going to be creativity. We didn't really make a clear chance in the game. Nick Pope didn't have that much to do either. I think he made one really good save, but was otherwise very well protected by the back four, who were all outstanding. Um, but it's going to be goals that's the problem with Corne away and Chris Wood gone. Yeah, McNeil did have that like one breakaway down the left where he could have crossed it early, but yeah, just a shoot. There was a couple couple of breaks at the end with McNeil where he maybe could have chose better options or executed better but I think he'd already run sort of 50-60 yards with the ball, it's 90 minutes of constant running, I thought McNeil had a really good game actually, mm. if he could have produced something at the end, brilliant, but it would have been real smash and grab Arsenal had like 75% possession or something, yeah. they didn't do much with it but they did completely dominate the ball 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair assessment of it. Also, uh, I was listening to a scouting podcast recently, and they were talking about Dwight McNeil and where he profiles long term because he's like a. They were saying it like a perfect traditional left midfielder, but that that position doesn't really exist for most teams anymore. So what's his future and whether or not he'd be a good left wing back. And somebody mentioned that they thought he'd be a really good central midfielder. And I noticed a couple of the runs that he took did kind of go through the middle of the pitch. And I was just curious if, if in this uh, grand conversation that we've had dating back to the start of the season when you signed Cornet, if, if maybe playing centrally is a thing that's been considered or, or if you think it would even work. I, I think McNeil's on record as saying that he wants to play centrally. And I think that's probably going to be the thing that hastens his departure. And um, Dash doesn't seem unwilling. Dash seems unwilling, sorry, to to play him centrally. But a couple of games this season where we've put out teams where you see the eleven and you think McNeil's going to play as a ten today, and then it's been Aaron Lennon or it's been something else that's come as a surprise. And McNeil's been on the left or he's been on the right sometimes you're like why is McNeil playing on the right so that somebody else can play out of position as well it's like what's going on but even when the opportunity's been there to do it Dash has seemed unwilling um but he does have the sort of freedom to cut inside and try and find the space because with him being the only creative player in the team right now with Corne away he just gets double marks all the time on the wing um I think the wing back is is an interesting conversation as well. I can't imagine he's he's particularly amenable to it, but he's played there for England under-21s, I think, because they play with the back three, so there's no wingers in their system. Um, And obviously, the amount of defending that he has to do for Sean Dyche's Burnley means that side of his game is actually really well developed for a young player. Um, You don't see many wingers in the Premier League who are McNeil's age, sort of 21, who can do that defensive side of the game and just be trusted to do it. So other managers might well look at Dwight McNeil and think this is a guy that can lock down a left wing defensively and still provide that creative threat. Um, I think the issue with McNeil on the wing long term is the pace. I think to be a top player, you need to be quick or have skills or ideally both, and he doesn't really have either. So maybe he can add the skills, but he's probably not going to get any faster. So, yeah, I, I really want to see him play in central midfield or as a number 10. It just doesn't seem like Dash wants to do that. Interesting. Well, hopefully you're able to hold on to him. I know uh, that you love him a lot, and we have now officially mentioned him so everybody can hit their counter. Uh, yeah, they have... <laughs> you didn't even have to shoe on it in because you asked him, asked the question directly about him. So, yeah, I'll... Uh file you some money for that later on okay yeah yeah that sounds good um and then perhaps shockingly my third question for you is about you know your leading scorer from the past few years which is chris wood obviously he's scored you know double digit goals for the last four or five years is the stat that keeps going around he goes to a relegation rival as you mentioned earlier newcastle painting themselves as the underdogs here seems a bit silly being able to being that they're able to do something like that uh, are we expecting for that money to be reinvested into the squad in general, reinvested into a player up front? Or as we talked about, I think the last time you were on, is their belief that J-Rod and Vidra might be enough up front? Well, I, I would hope just seeing today's game was enough demonstration that that's just not going to work. I think <laughs> they've got like one goal between them in the league all season, so it's just not going to happen. Um I think my concern is that we needed investment before Wood went, and then you lose the 
the main striker from the past four or five years as well. So there's a huge, huge hole to fill there. Um, obviously, with it being a release clause, it was out of our hands somewhat. But they knew that that was in his contract. Newcastle had been linked with him before. Newcastle were desperate for a striker. Why didn't anyone put two and two together and guess that this might be on the cards? Um, I think it has been a difficult window for a lot of teams. It's not just Burnley who are struggling to get deals done. Like I said, Newcastle aren't getting all the players that they want and they have a blank checkbook. So if they can't do it, it's no surprise that Burnley are finding it tricky. Um one of the things that came out this week was another report about the um, the way that the takeover was constructed and there was a claim in the Daily Mail newspaper over here that one of the payments to the former owners, which was part of the deal, had been missed or they'd had to agree a deferral because the new chairman couldn't afford it, basically. The chairman denied that was the case, but it's... A real worry for a story like that to come up at this time when Burnley trying to sign players. It just paints a picture of a club in a bit of disarray at the moment. Like I say, we needed players before before Wood went, and we we need more now. I I would love to see us bring in three, four quality players over the next week, but I'm not expecting that to happen, unfortunately. All right, well, all interesting things there. Hopefully, you will be able to bring in another striker. I agree with you, J Rod, and. Uh... Vidra, probably not enough up front, but time will obviously tell there. Um, Steve, we'll come to you now to talk about Tottenham. Uh, disappointing result today. Uh, also, two side stats. First of all, obviously, three losses to Chelsea in 10 days. Not very fun, despite uh, them being in different competitions, obviously. Also, dating back to Mourinho's first season when things were actually going well, we've now had four opportunities in the last two and a half seasons to break into the top four by beating Chelsea, and we've done it none of those times. Uh, obviously, Conte keeps going back to this well of, you know, it'll take us two or three years to reach the level of a club like Chelsea if we make all the right decisions and stuff like that. Does that ring true to you, that just Chelsea are just inherently better and Tottenham are just inherently worse, or were you hoping for a little bit more in this match? No, that's that's exactly what uh, you you have to say at the moment. That they, I mean, they're the European champions, for goodness sake. I mean, that uh, it was always going to be a... A war of attrition, given uh, you know, given how we played them in the last few games as well, and uh, you know what you what you expect going to Stamford Bridge as well. But um, I, I have to say, it was an interesting lineup, uh, and we talked a little bit about this before before we went live. That it was almost like <clears throat> Conte decided to take all our fit defenders and play them, and have no defenders on the bench. Um, and, and that was one of those decisions, I think, that can either backfire spectacularly or or make you look like a tactical genius in the echelon of Ralph Rangnick. So uh, it was it was an interesting way to approach the game. I mean, I, it was good talking of defenders. It was good to see Dyer back, and I and I actually thought he did he did pretty well. And of course, Conte, you know, he had to go with Bergwijn today. He had the hot hand after the after the Leicester game, and I I thought he was moving really well in the first half. But mm. you know. The stats will the stats will will bear it out. We just didn't challenge Chelsea enough, um, and you know we knew it, it would be a, an, an initial onslaught that was you know was important that we didn't concede early, and then there was the sense that the closer we got to half time, you know we're starting to uh, make ourselves um, make ourselves uh, solid. Um, but you know Chelsea moved the ball really well, and, and you know we were always going to have to withstand a lot of uh, a lot of attempts on goal. And um, you know our, our disallowed goal 
just before half time. You know, it was never a foul. And you know, if Kane had gone down like that easily, he'd he, if he'd gone down, he'd never hear the end of it. But uh, you know, these things happen, and I can see on the on the replay why it was given. But it also came just at at, at a time when the game was was starting to be more stretched, um, and I think there was uh, there was there were going to be more chances at either end. And I'm not sure even if even if our goal had counted that it it, it would have uh, it would have taken any of the pressure off us. Uh, I, and the number of times, you know, just after the break, um, we haven't quite woken up yet. You know, you and I have talked about this before, where we're still coming down the tunnel when the other team takes advantage of uh, of the fact that we've taken our eye off the ball a bit. But that was a, just a just a superb goal by Ziyech. And, I, you know, you have to hold your hands up and say, um, <clears throat> you know, there's not much you can do about that. And the second goal... Classic, classic Spurs switch off at a at a set piece, and we just we just lost our way. I will have to say one thing though, and, and this goes back to uh, when I was on with you at the start of the season, and I think I said that when when Chelsea signed Lukaku, I, I thought that he was going to be the missing piece for them, uh, and I think I think I even told you that I I thought he would turn out to be a more significant signing for them than Ronaldo would be for Man United. Well, you know, obviously, clearly, I was wrong about that on on several levels. But uh, but I think if you look at Lukaku's performance today, his lack of sharpness made the difference between you know the game basically being over at halftime and and the result being even more convincing than than it was. So uh, it was disappointing that we didn't challenge Chelsea uh, at all until the game started to get stretched. Uh, uh, but I think once they once they scored, and then the fact that the second goal. Uh, came so relatively quickly after that. Uh, I think it was always uh, it was always going to be difficult for us. But you know, we 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 pick up and we move on. And uh, again, it's one more game for for Conte to learn something. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if he pictured himself back in their dugout today at any at any point. But I I could um, I could forgive him for doing so. Yeah, I think you're right on a lot of counts there. The the decisions were frustrating. The referee was not particularly good. But ultimately, as you say, Lukaku just missed two balls that came in, one to his feet, one to his head, that just should have been goals. I think ultimately, 2-0 might have been a fair reflection, maybe 2-1 or 3-1 if Kane's goal is allowed. But ultimately, it would have been a loss anyway, which is why I think... Some Spurs fans are even more frustrated that it basically came down to a worldy and a set piece goal. Yeah, because yeah. Th- they could have been two or three really nicely built goals, but the fact that it came yeah. down to that makes it, I think, maybe harder for for some to stomach. Uh, part of the reason for the very weird six two two formation <laughs> that, uh, that Conte rolled out today, that functioned as a four four two in attack, but defensively not so much, um, was that there was no Deli Ali, no Tangi and Dombele. And no Giovanni Lo Celso. The first two maybe not shocking. Sounds like both of them could be on their way. Sounds like domestic clubs are interested in Delhi either on a loan or a purchase with Everton or Newcastle kind of leading the way, according to reports. Uh, then you have PSG allegedly sniffing around Ndombele, which makes sense because he's the perfect midfielder in Poch's midfield. And we bought him for Poch and then socked, <laughs> sacked Poch like two and a half months later. Um, but the interesting one for me is Lo Celso, who has looked brilliant just about every time he's donned an Argentina kit, which he's honestly done more than he has a Tottenham kit over the last three years since we signed him. Um, but I just found that really interesting. He was asked after the match why there was no Lo Celso, and he said, I pick the team, but for this question, you have to ask the club. 
Because yeah. it sounds like there was some interference at a higher level. Uh, what do you make of, of those three potentially departing? And then in particular, the, the Lo situation, which admittedly we don't have a lot of information on right now. Right. And, and actually, I have to hold my hands up and say that you told me about the Lo Celso uh, situation just as we were coming on the air. So uh, I really I, I don't know other than to sort of assume that some kind of deal might be in the in the works. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you don't know the internal um, uh, machinations of, of what goes on at, at, at Spurs <clears throat> in terms of the overall strategy. But uh, I think Conte, what Conte is very good at is painting a picture uh, without actually saying uh, what's actually happening. So I think he's given us, uh, he's certainly given us something that uh, we'll read about in the sports pages tomorrow. Um, as, as far as the other two are concerned, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think um, we, we may not have enough time in this window to, and we'll come on to talk about transfers, I know, in, in, in the next section, but we may not have time to actually finalize those deals, but, um, but at least we're, we're having conversations about it. So uh, I think we always have to work on the principle that, and I, and I think maybe the other players are now at that point where they're, they're saying, well, you know, and Dombele clearly is out of favor. We're not going to be working with him. He's training by himself. Um, you know, we're not, we're not including him in how we prepare for a up, upcoming game. So in a way that kind of, it, it makes it a lot easier for the other players to not have to worry about, about that and having to change their, their, uh, uh, their routine around ahead of time to incorporate them. So, um, yeah, Delhi is going to be interesting, and I think where Delhi ends up is uh, Newcastle seem to be the, as you say, it seem to be the favourite for for Delhi's signature. But uh, and it, it, it's um, ironic that it comes on the the anniversary of that that uh, beautifully sexy goal against Crystal Palace, and uh, <clears throat> and how much um, you know Poch loved that. But uh, no. I, Delhi is one of those players that a very typical Spurs player in a way that you know he's inherently incredibly talented and he's more talented than most of the other players on the park with him. Um, but it, which makes it even more frustrating when it just doesn't click, when it just doesn't happen with him. So again, I'm fascinated to hear what uh, what how the Lo Celso situation develops or or gets explained away tomorrow. Uh, Delhi, I think, is a matter of waiting to see where he might where he might go, um, and uh, with Ndombele, you know, it, it, it is such a shame that our most expensive signing uh, turned out to be a bust. Really, in 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 the way in which, compared to the expectations that we had for him, and as you say, he was signed very specifically to to fit into a a potch team. Uh, and it just it just didn't uh, it just didn't work out. So, and and of course you know what Conte said in that uh, interview yesterday was it or or Friday, where he talked about uh, you know there are certain players that uh, there's only so much he can do with them. Uh, I think it was it was pretty clear that he was talking about about Tonga in, in there. But the thing again with Tonga and uh, and Delhi, there's absolutely no question that these are talented players. Um, it's just even more disappointing that we don't see it. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And that whole window now looking disappointing, especially if Lacelso is on his way out. You know, Lacelso and Dombele Sessegnon looked like a brilliant window at the time. 
Um, yeah. And in hindsight, yeah, just didn't work out. And, and, you know, as we both said, it was for a different manager, but you'd think that, that with the level of talent that those three players have, that it would have worked out <laughs> by now. Also, I pointed out to a friend of mine that I was watching the, the match with today uh, that our interest in Lacelso is why we didn't sign Dybala or Bruno Fernandez. So that's a, a really fun thing to think about in hindsight. Well, Dybala, for sure. I, I think that's absolutely right. I still have this, I harbor this, uh, this weird um, uh, fantasy that we signed the wrong Fernandez, that we signed Gedson instead of Bruno <laughs> at, at the time, which actually would explain a lot. It really um, would. But I think also for, for Sessegnon, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to write him off just yet. Uh, I, I admittedly, he didn't, he didn't do much today, didn't set the sky on fire. But, uh, but I think, again, there's a very, very talented player in there uh, that we just we just need to be able to use in a in a way that uh, that suits the, the the team as a whole. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, on the other side of the uh, player evaluation that Antonio Conte has done at the club is Hugo Lloris, who it seemed like his future was kind of in question under Nuno. Conte came in and basically from day one was like. We need Hugo Lloris to stay. He's now signed a two-year extension. Uh, I have this working theory that Hugo Lloris is actually better now than he was three or four years ago because he doesn't have the speed to come off the line to do crazy things like he used to try to do. And then a lot of times they kind of backfired and they ended up being goals. What have you made of Hugo Lloris the past couple of years and are you excited that we'll get to see him for another couple? Oh, absolutely. I think that was that for me and, and you know, talking about the, the overall uh, activity in this transfer window, you know that the, the the stability that having Hugo around for another two years is is amazing and uh, actually makes this window whatever however it ends up uh, makes it a, a more positive thing. Uh, you know he really has you you hit that nail on the head. He really has played better in the last couple of years than I think uh, even since well since the um, since the World Cup victory for example. I mean I think he's mm. he's uh, his. Uh, Consistency and uh, a shot stopping ability is, has enhanced, if uh, if anything. And and I think what it does now, having him around, knowing that that we have him for another couple of years, it uh, it gives us that stability, and it means that we can go and look for a new keeper um, probably a year later than we were perhaps intending to. And I think that takes an awful lot of pressure off um, how you allocate your transfer transfer resources. Uh, and maybe part of maybe part of that was just you know they've looked at you know Nick Pope they've looked at um, uh, two or three other young particularly English keepers and they've thought well you know these are these are good players but they're not you know are they not are they actually going to displace the keeper that we have now uh, and so being able to get Hugo to extend also gives us the um, the possibility that he could act as a mentor to whoever. We sign, and I, I, I do. I like Messier, although he does make a couple of um, a couple of un, unforced errors here and there. But I, I, I do like him as a as a, a potential keeper going forward. And, and the fact that he's now he's now the regular France under twenty one keeper, I think actually uh, there, there's there's a, a confluence there that I think might uh, might work. But of course. He's not unless Leeds get relegated. He's not going to be content to come and and just be understudy to Hugo, having been a, a Premier League regular keeper. But but I, I you know if we go out and we get a keeper, why not get another French keeper and let Hugo mentor him for two years? 
Yeah, I always thought that was going to be Alphonse Areola, especially when he was at PSG, because I was like, Hugo will end up being the captain of France and the captain of PSG, and then we'll get Areola going the other way. But uh, yeah, you've, you've just gone for another French one, and I'm, I'm frankly all for it. Um, all right, we'll move from there into Player Watch, where with just one week left in the window, I was wondering uh, how many, if any, incomings and outgoings do you think we'll see from your clubs? Yeah, so I think we've been trying to do deals with not much success um so far so hopefully there will be action like i said earlier in the show i think it is challenging in january Burnley haven't got the biggest budget in the bottom four obviously um but there should be some money to spend the wood money should be there to invest there should have been some money available before that um it seems to have gone a bit quiet on rumours, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think transfers do come out of nowhere occasionally still sometimes, so that's the straw that I'm choosing to grasp at right now. The most exciting player I think we've been linked with is Fafana from League Earn. Hmm. Um, I'll say I watch a huge amount of that division, but the sort of profile of Fafana as a, an energetic box-to-box midfielder who scores goals Certainly something that would add um, what we need in our team. We haven't had goals midfield for a long time. We need a bit more presence in our midfield. Fafana seems like he would be a good fit. Um, back at the start of the season when people were talking about corner, I couldn't see how we were possibly going to get that deal done. And we did. So Fafana would be fantastic. Um, Strax is the obvious one. We have to try and replace Wood and his goals and the way he leads the line. Somehow, there's been some talk about Benteke at Palace, which I think is okay, but he's never been particularly prolific. And if it's going to be a particularly large fee for someone who's a bit older than Chris Wood and probably a bit slower than Chris Wood, it's difficult to get too excited about that, although he obviously knows the Premier League inside out, having been there for a long time. Um, I think it's going to be tough. There's a lot of work to do this week. Um, you look at the squad today, there's only a couple of players injured, Corneo at AFCON, and we had five defenders on the bench, no strikers, one wide player. It's just extremely thin. The team basically picks itself at the moment. Um, there was talk in the summer that we had a really good window with some of the players that we brought in, but essentially there's only Corne improved the team. Connor Roberts did start today, his first Premier League start for us, I think. And had a good game, so presumably Roberts will be the right back moving forward. But that's still two out of maybe the six, five, six that we signed in the summer. So a team that needed strengthening still needs strengthening. And I think it's time now, every time I've come on the podcast, I think I've said the chairman needs to start delivering on the promises. <laughs> it's put up or shut up right now. Yeah, it's uh, astonishing sometimes how quickly the, the transfer window goes. You know, when, once you get into it and and... You get day after day of <clears throat> of no developments and uh, and clear sort of pressure from the fans to on social particularly to 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 do something. But uh, you know we we we've always had a, a reputation for for leaving our business, leaving the things to, um, until the last minute. So uh, so let's let's see you know where where we are by the time the the purple vibrator appears on on the Sky Sports, and I think things <laughs> might be in a, a different position. But uh, 
you know, obviously the one that people have been talking about is, you know, Triori looks close to being done, but, you know, every day seems to move it a little more forward. Frank Kessie, um, a, a little less so, but maybe more likely than not still. I mean, you probably have more information about that than, than, than I do. Uh, we've already mentioned the Hugo business, extending that, I think, is, is a, just a huge positive within that uh, this window. So, I, I, you know, I would think with that and if we can find some kind of resolution to the Ndombele situation, I think that would that would probably suit me for this window um, because, you know, we knew any of the wholesale changes were likely to happen in the summer anyway. So I, I think if we can get if we can get our injured players back um, because, you know, it's rare that we have so many key players out injured. Um, along with the, you know, the thing we talked about earlier, this renewed spirit within the team, then I think we we might be in, in good shape for the next the next couple of weeks. Um, there's been some talk <clears throat> about Brian Brian Hill. <clears throat> excuse me, Brian Hill. I, I, I seem to you lose my voice every time I try to pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about him going on loan to Valencia and uh, Tanganga going to AC Milan, and actually I think I'd actually be okay with that. If I knew they were playing every week, uh, I mean, I can see Hill going, but, but, but probably not Jaffet right now. The way in which um, uh, Conte seems to be using him uh, at the moment, but uh, I, and I think it's important to sort of think that a lot, an awful lot, actually, is going to depend on the fabric of the squad next year. So I'm hoping that Partici and Conte, as, as well as not just filling the gaps and upgrading. Where, where we need to, and clearly we do need to. Uh, I hope that they'll they'll have one eye on the on the psychological mindset of the squad. So I think we will see a move away from the traditional Spurs policy of signing, you know, younger prospects with a potentially high sell-on value, and and more movement I think towards buying the sorts of proven experience that Conte's used to, and and obviously he he needs now. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And, and I think you're right. I think it's probably just the Dama Traore. There's a chance it could be Frank Kessie if we see all these other midfielders go. But then you'd see all of our attacking style midfielders leaving. Like, it could literally be Deli and Dombele Lacelso and Hill, yeah. which is literally entirely all of our attacking or creative midfielders, and replacing them with another central box-to-box type that would be right in that same mix with Winks and Skip and Hoybier. So, uh it would be a well, very also, interesting yeah. squad move. But Conte yeah. shown before, he doesn't really need a true number 10, which is fortunate because none of the players that I mentioned are. Um, but yeah, that'll be interesting. Also, just a bit of an update while we're talking about creative midfielders and Tottenham. Uh, Jamie, you mentioned earlier Brentford and not having a lot of Premier yeah. League experience. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. they're trying to get Christian Eriksen, which would yeah, be... Apparently, they're close to a six-month uh, six deal. Yeah, but it apparently needs uh, his health needs to be checked off by the FA, but that would be... Very interesting. And also, if he's fit enough to play, why aren't other clubs in for him? Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's had a bit of a layoff with his health, but he's been training with young Ajax. I think he was training in Denmark before that. So anyway, just a bit of late breaking news here on the show. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times throughout the show already, we're about to be on a pretty big break here. Uh, should have Dave and I's uh, wrap up of the transfer window in the interim. But a couple of weeks from now, we're all going to be back we're all going to be back playing football, in theory, since both of our clubs have had many delays. But, uh, Jamie, assuming that you're allowed to play, regardless of whether or not Ranieri is at the helm for your opponents, you'll be facing Watford. What do you think we'll see in that one? Yeah, I mean, it's 
I think it's difficult to underplay the importance of this game. Obviously, um, we have all these games in hand. Watford is one of them because it's been delayed a couple of times. Watford are around the bottom four with us. We're at home. Watford were absolutely terrible on Friday night, was it, um, against Norwich? To play like that against us, then it has to be our second win of the season. It just has to be. Um, like I've said, today's game against Arsenal, we just didn't look like we had any creative threat. It didn't look like we were going to score a goal. Um, Watford are worse than Arsenal, I think it's fair to say. Probably not controversial. So <laughs> maybe there'll be something different going on there. Um, yeah, like like you mentioned earlier, with, with the layoff, it's going to have been one league game in five weeks or something that we'll have played. So very difficult to have the players up to speed. I think it will be beneficial in some ways if um, Charlie Taylor, for example, is available. If Corne is back from AFCON by then, I don't know how far in the tournament will be by then, but if they were to get knocked out, we'd probably get him back for that game, which will be huge. Dennis will be suspended for them, which is huge because he's their best attacker. So there's massive pressure on it. Um, the one thing I would say is that throughout Dash's near decade at the club, when the heat has been on and we've been in sort of this must-win um, situation, we do tend to get the results. Um doesn't always happen, but traditionally, Dash has only have won the games that they absolutely have to win. This is a game that we absolutely have to win, so we have to be positive about our chances. Gotcha. And then, Steve, after an hour-long layoff, we're going to be coming back to face Brighton in the FA Cup. Just curious if, if you think we're going to focus on that, or since Conte has so much historical success when only focusing on one competition, if we might <laughs> kind of be angling towards not giving our all on that one. Yeah, I know. Just just tell them it's all one competition, for goodness sake. Actually, you know, given <laughs> how given how the season has developed and, and the 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 backlog, the fixture backlog, and, and how the, you know, with frequency of how we're going to try and make these up. I'm really actually glad, more glad now than I was, that we're out of the Europa Conference, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, the Brighton game, it's, it, this is one of one of those games where I think I'd be, I'd be more concerned about um, a performance from us if we were away from home. Every Anytime a draw is made now at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of relatively okay if we're drawn at home, no matter who it's against. And I do, you know, get the sense that that, uh, that 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 feeds through to the players as well. And having said that, you know, I, ha- I have a lot of time for Graham Potter and, and Brighton seem to have been finding themselves at another level, if if a little inconsistently this season as well. So they're they're in a similar sort of groove to us. Um, I think it'll be an interesting game. As I say, I'm I'm slightly more confident about it because uh, because it's at the Lane and not uh, down at the Amex. But uh, <clears throat> the other thing also is that our next two League games after that, after the cup, um, are uh, home, are home to Southampton and home to Wolves, and I think those are, uh, you know, those are going to be um, probably must-win league games for us as well. To you know, th- those are the games that we should expect to be to be winning at home, and uh, and and that's going to be a that's going to be a big challenge just to consolidate where we are and hopefully uh, you know keep in keep in touch with that top four, top five. Um, so yeah, I, I'm upbeat about the cup, uh, and I think the uh, the two the two home games immediate the two league home games immediately following the cup uh, are are a big test for us as well. But I think we'll uh, I think we'll come through those pretty well. Yep, 
win the games in hand, of which Arsenal is the hardest, and Tottenham sit third. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we can take those steps towards securing a, a spot in the top four. We'll we'll see. Uh, but we will leave things there. If you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you've been working on, now's a good time. Yeah, always good to be back on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Kev. Um, I'm Jamie Smith, I support Burnley. I do the Morning and Ever newsletter, which goes out by a sub stack every Monday, and it's free. Um, so please subscribe if you're at all interested. And you can follow me on my personal Twitter, which is at Jamie Smith Sport as well. And yes, thanks again, uh, uh, Kev, for having me back on and another good conversation. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. You can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin. And uh, I will have a new project to talk to you about uh, in a couple of months. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable on Twitter. And you can also find it by searching EPL Roundtable in all of your podcasting doodads. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell was that? (laughs) Doodads. Doodads. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.